I don't know if you uh, have ever had someone in your life that you wanted to have a relationship with, but you just found it very difficult uh, to get that going. Uh, maybe you're in high school and you start dating somebody and you were just like head over heels with, for them, right? But it wasn't being reciprocated back. And you were thinking to yourself, what in the world do I need to do to get this person to love me? Uh, because I really like this person and I, I really think I'd like to go deep in a relationship with them, maybe even get married someday. And so that's all going on in your head. And, uh, but the person you have uh, seemingly fell in love with uh, they're not really thinking those kinds of thoughts. So, for example, my wife and I, when we, uh, our first date was on Valentine's Day, and I bought a card, a Valentine's card, and I didn't know how to sign it. And I signed it, Love, Greg. Big mistake. So, whoa, whoa, wait, whoa, love, whoa, hey, <laughs> we're just friends, okay? And, and, and it's barely beyond that, okay? I, I'm going out on, you know, for one date with you. That's it. it so obviously, in my heart, my mind, I thought, you know, she's the one, she's it, uh, we're going to be happily married happily ever after, and so obviously, as we began dating, um, I was trying to say, what, what can I do, what can I do to help uh, take this relationship to a deeper level, and uh, for a while, it just, it just wasn't happening. Or maybe um, you, have, uh, you have some adult children. And there is, as uh, Brian mentioned, there are some distance problems there. There are some issues in which your, ch- your child or your children, uh, there's just kind of a creative distance between you and them. You would, you would love for that relationship to go deeper than it is right now. Uh, you know how it is when children are young. They love you. They think that you're just the world. Uh, you know, um, they, you can't do anything wrong. And then they hit certain age, and then you can't do anything right. Okay, as a parent, you're, you're just not, you don't have it together. Uh, you're not bright enough. And so there is a, a natural distance that happens between parents and their teenage children uh, that just is created. And so as a parent, uh, maybe you have a child who is, is wandering away, and they're just like getting deeper and deeper away from you, and there's just more and more distance being created between the two of you. And every time you try to bridge that gap, it just ends up becoming an argument uh, between you, and you, you as a parent and your children, and it just seems to create more distance rather than uh, fostering a, a, an atmosphere where the relationship can grow and deepen in intimacy. Or perhaps it's the other way around. And uh, like me, you come from a divorced home. And so my parents divorced when I was young, and so my dad, you know, there wasn't much relationship there. I saw him once a year, uh, usually at Christmas time, and then we'd spend, you know, two weeks uh, in the summertime uh, with my dad, and when I got to be 16 years old, then I went to work for him uh, during the summertime. And so there was this relationship, father-son relationship, but it was never the father-son relationship like normal, what I thought normal father-son relationships would be like. And so there's just this like distance. There's this, uh, you know, he's my father, and you know, I love my dad, and would do anything for my father, and he would do anything for me. But it's even now at you know my age when we get together, there's just like there's a relationship. But it's just, it's just a little bit weird. It's like uh, I would really like to go in some deep conversation with you, but when I try to do that, it just kind of backs away and, and it just doesn't happen. And it just seems stiff and awkward and kind of throws you off balance. Or maybe it's in marriage, you know, and you, you got married and you thought, whoo, you know, this, this love relationship is just going to grow over time. It's going to get deeper and deeper and deeper. 
And then you realize instead of marrying the ideal, you married an ordeal, and now you're looking for a new deal, right? So there's just not much happening. Uh, and, and try as you might to bridge that gap and, and to um, foster a deepening relationship. Uh, your relationship seems more polite uh, than anything else. It's, um, you're just frustrated, and you try to do everything you know to do to try to bring about greater intimacy and and, um, you know, you just kind of keep going through the routines, and you've been to the councils, you've read the books, and you've done all the things you think you can do, but it's just not being reciprocated back to you, and that can be very frustrating. So I would dare say that um, through the course of life, all of us have experienced uh, wanting to go deeper in a relationship with someone, uh, but it's not being reciprocated back, and therefore you, you tried as you might to get that person to like you, to love you, or to go deeper in that relationship. It just wasn't happening. Well, the Bible is very clear from cover to cover that God, our Heavenly Father, the creator of us, wants this deep, deep, um, intimate relationship with us. And he, he wants it to, to be a relationship that is growing uh, day after day and week after week in which our trust in God just goes deeper and deeper. Our love for him just grows uh, deeper and deeper. And it's just like, uh, you know, as Jesus said, to drink from the living well. It's just like it just becomes more and more precious to you day in and day out. But the fact of the matter is many relationships uh, between um, God's created beings and himself as the heavenly father are distant at best. And so obviously when we're born into this world, we are born with a disconnect from God. And uh, so God sent Jesus into the world to die for us to demonstrate his love for us so that we could enter into this relationship with him through his son, Jesus Christ, so that that relationship can begin and it can grow and deepen year in and year out. But, but sometimes when we're trying to navigate through that relationship, there are things that happen in our lives for which we question God and kind of take us back and we're thinking, well, you know what, Lord, uh, if you really want to have this relationship, if you really want me to go deeper with you, why did this happen? And why did you allow this to take place? And I don't understand this. And so when you know, the, like I do, that the foundation of all relationships is the issue of trust, right? If, if you can't trust a person, you can't have a deepening relationship with them. Even if you love them, if you can't trust them, you can't go any deeper than the surface, and sometimes that trust factor between ourselves and God erodes away, uh, maybe not like overnight, but over time because of things that transpire in our lives and we have questions for God and God doesn't seem to be answering those questions. And so we treat God then respectfully. Uh, we treat him, uh, you know, in a maybe a casual ma manner, uh, but there's not this real ongoing deepening relationship. So this is what I want to talk about this morning is the issue of trust. As I shared with you earlier, um, I think God's gotten a bad deal, and, and one of the bad deals is that we have believed so many lies about God. We, we have tried to take God and to make him like, you know, it's kind of like a salad bar where we just want to take a little bit of this, what we believe and think about God, and a little bit of this, and a little bit of this, and we just kind of formulate. And so now we, we create God in our image rather than living as being created in his image. And, and then when God doesn't come through for us, because this is my perception of God, these are my expectations of him, when he doesn't come through for us, then all of a sudden we are let down. 
Right? It's in any relationship, whether it's a husband and wife, parents and children, when you feel let down and you feel that there's a breach of trust, now all of a sudden there's just this weirdness that enters into the relationship. And so here we are in Luke chapter 15 because Jesus came. Jesus came for the purpose, or one of the purposes, is to reveal the Father. And so Jesus is our model. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. If you see me, you've seen the Father. So if you want to know what the Father looks like, if you want to know how the Father is going to respond to you in various um, situations in your life, just look at how Jesus responded to the situations we find himself in. And so Jesus overheard these um, Pharisees and teachers of the law uh, murmuring to themselves, talking to themselves, among themselves, hey, uh, we can't believe that Jesus is willing to spend time with these sinners and tax collectors. He, sh- he shouldn't be hanging out with those kinds of people because God doesn't like those kinds of people. That was their mindset. And so Jesus wanted to, to show them how foolish they were, that they were absolutely got it wrong. God loves sinful people. Right? Because every sinful person is a person who is desperate for God's love. That means every single one of us sitting here this morning, we qualify. Because we're all sinners who are desperate for God's love. And so God sent the solution to our problem through Jesus. So Jesus launched into three parables about something that is lost and about something that is found and there's great rejoicing. And in the parable of the prodigal son or the two lost sons, however you want to term it, however it might be in your Bible. Uh, What Jesus uh, was really focusing here on, obviously there's two sons, a younger son, an older brother, uh, is that the older brother is obviously representative of the Pharisees and, and their mindset. But more than that, what Jesus wanted us to see and to understand is who is the father? What is he like? How does he respond when you rebel against him? How does he respond when you walk in just religion? In other words, religion is, God, I've got to earn your love. I've got to earn your favor. God, really, and both for both sons, it was really all about, I, we really don't want this intimate relationship. We just want your stuff. Give us your stuff. Leave us alone. When we need you, we'll call you, right? So that's pretty much the way that most people live their lives. And so here is this uh, younger son, it says in verse 11 of chapter 15, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and squandered his wealth in wild living. And after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields of the to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating. Now, uh, let me tell you something. Uh, When I pastored in Alabama, I had a pig farmer in my my church. And there were a couple occasions I went out and helped him feed them pigs. If you get to the point where you want and desire what they're eating, it's a sad state, okay? This is like, whoo, you know, if if you're that desperate, man, there's something... You're okay. There's some screws loose in your head by this point. You're just not thinking right. And so the positive were eat, but no one gave him anything. But then, but then he came to his senses. Now, I want us to gain some insight why this distance um, between ourselves and our heavenly fathers sometimes gets created. 
right? It doesn't matter to me how long you've been walking with God. There are times in your life where there can be great intimacy, and there are times in your life where there seems to be a distance. There's like a, like a, a disconnect in that relationship. It just doesn't seem to be going anywhere. It doesn't seem to be, to, to be um, you know, evolving. It's just kind of stagnant. And then you get bored. And so, uh, obviously, we talked about the fact that uh, when you come into the world, um, there's this orphan spirit. And so an orphan spirit means an orphan is a person without a home. So without a home, there's no sense of security or purpose in life. And so we are all born in this world with this orphan spirit because the original orphan, Satan, Lucifer, rebelled against God, cast out of heaven with, the, with his uh, demonic beings who were created angels, all of them were. And so he was an orphan. He was without a home. He was cast down to the earth. He had no sense of security or acceptance or love. Or uh, he, he was just there. And so God placed Adam and Eve right in the midst of his, his domain, right in his backyard. And so he tempted them to become like himself, which is to choose against God and thus become an orphan. And that's exactly what happened. They were, you know, they were escorted out of the garden. There were angels that were put at the doorway so they had no access to come back into the garden. So they could not access the tree of life. And so here they are. They are without a sense of security and purpose and love and protection. And God wanted to be all those things for them. And so the orphan spirit is rooted in fear and lies. And uh, so you and I, as we grow up and we are disconnected from God, and, and maybe for some of you, the orphan spirits lived in one of two ways, either through rebellion or religion. And so here we have a younger son who's living his life through rebellion, right? So, uh, and it's driven by fear, it's driven by lies, and because that's what Satan does. He, just, he, he tries to drive our lives through those two avenues. The older brother is driven by religion. So there's an orphan spirit, religion. Remember I said religion, not relationship. There's a difference between religion and relationship. Relationship's about Christianity. Religion is about earning God's favor, earning God's love, and getting God into your debt. Uh, and, and, and it's really a subtle form of controlling God. Relationship is about letting God be God, right? And so there is a huge trust factor here. If I'm going to let God be God, because that means I have to trust him to unfold his will and his plan and his purposes in my life. And I may not understand why certain things are happening in my life. So here's this young kid. He obviously he grew up in a very stable home. Um, he, he's probably, you know, had wise and godly dad and probably plenty of friends. Obviously, he's in a good position. Uh, his, his father has a lot of wealth. Has a lot of property, a lot of status in the community. Uh, he's going to obviously inherit part of the family business. He's got an older brother who's on the straight and narrow. Seems to be real obedient to the father. But then all of a sudden, like most teenagers, um, he began to hear voices inside his head. All right? And so these voices begin to roll around, and the voices begin to say things like, um, like I... I don't know what you would call it. I call it a spirit of independence, all right? So it's like the voices that say, hey, um, how long are you going to put up with the family rules? Yes, dad, no, dad, okay, dad, I'll do that, dad. And so there's this spirit of independence inside of you that just begins to well up and says, you know what, I'm tired of following my dad's rules. I'm tired of, you know, listening to my older brother and... and, and we don't even get along anyways, and, and why in the world should I comply to his requests? And 
After all, my daddy's he's starting to cramp my style. My brother's cramping my style. I really want to go out. I, want to, I really want to try and forge my own dream of the, you know, whatever the Middle Eastern dream is all about. And so, uh, and so at first when he probably heard these voices, it probably became a little bit unsettled, thinking, well, you know, I really got it good here. Uh, you know, I got three square meals. I got a roof over my head. I got a bed. I've got all kinds of fringe benefits, living off my parents' stuff. And um, you'll get that. So, um, so, who, so, but the independence voice says, but, but who's really in control here? Who's going to be in control of my life? Who's going to call the shots? And uh, over time, it's just, you know what? I, I'm, I've got to take control. I've got to take the reins of my life. I've got to call the shots. I've got to do what I want to do. i just got to be who I am. Right? So we all have been there as teenagers, right? You couldn't wait to get out of your parents' house. You, you couldn't wait not to have to follow their rules. And, and you thought, you know, well, uh, you know, when I get out of my parents' house, I'm going to do this, this, and this. Not thinking, not thinking that it was your parents' money that put that food on the table and the bed and the roof over your head and all those things. But, but we were going to start. So he asked his dad, and he says in essence, as we, begin, we learned last week, hey, dad, I, I know it's not rightfully mine right now now, my inheritance, but I want it right now. So dad, you know, I just really wish you were dead. So let's just get on with this thing and let me do my thing. And so uh, what really astounded the, the listeners was the fact that the father actually gave him his inheritance, which means that the father sold off all of his land, all of his, his holdings. Uh, he was really giving of his own life and his status in the community. And you'll notice it says that he gave them. So the older son got his two-thirds of the inheritance. The younger son got his one-third of the inheritance. And off he, he went to cut out his chosen path of independence. And he could hardly wait. Now, as you well know, when you put a lot of money in the hands of a 16, 17-year-old kid, probably not going to turn out well. And sure enough, he goes out and he's like, whoo, man, look, you know when you have not had to work to earn something, you have very little respect for it, right? And so I don't know how long it took for him to blow through his cash, but he blew through it pretty quick, and he, you know, the older brother, you know, his wild living was like, you know, he he, he loved the prostitutes. Um, he, uh, how, whatever else he did, he was going to live independent of God, which created what? Distance. He went off into a far country. Now, I want you to notice the subtlety here of what this young man was falling into. It is a trap that is set by Satan himself. You see, there are three um, primary traps that the enemy uses against you in order to create distance in your relationship between you and the Heavenly Father. And when that distance begins to happen and the relationship begins to erode, your life is open and subject to all kinds of brokenness. And you think this young man was a little broken by the end of his little escapade? Absolutely. He has no money. He has no friends. He can't even find a job except with a pig farmer, for which for a Jewish young man was the, the worst job he could ever have. And then he's longing to eat the slop of the pigs. That's pretty low. Would you agree? 
So what is the lie of the enemy that we have to fight? Remember, the orphan spirit is rooted in fears and lies. And the only way you can heal the orphan spirit is through the renewing of your mind. You're literally renovating your thought processes. You're taking out the lies, and you have to replace it with truth so that you begin to build your life on truth. So because your thought processes become the grid system through which everything must filter. So last week, we looked at the lie of what? God is against you, right? God's against you. He doesn't love you. He doesn't really care about you. If he really did, these things would not happen. And so that lie-based thinking will affect the way you view God, the way you view one another, the way you pray, the way you trust God or won't trust God. It affects every aspect of your life, how you view God. And so the truth is that God was not against you. God is for you. So here's the lie for today. And the lie is simply this. God cannot be trusted. God cannot be trusted. And I'm, I'm going to tell you, your enemy, the thief who comes to steal and kill and destroy, He'll give you a thousand and one reasons why God can't be trusted. And listen, he's not going to pull up something that is, you know, out of the nowhere. He's going to pull up something right in your own life. Hey, Greg, if, you, if God could have been trusted, then why is it that your sister was killed in a car accident at 20 years of age? Tell me. Tell me. If God's so grand and so loving and so kind, why did that happen to her? So he can come up with all kinds of life events that you and I have experienced personally, hardships and breakups and divorces and wayward children and money problems and abuse. And I mean, there's a thousand and one things he can pull up into our memory banks And so here's the truth of the gospel, and that is that God has proven himself to be trustworthy. So let's look at these three primary traps that he uses. The traps are this, money, pleasure, and ambition. So the Bible says that we shouldn't be ignorant of Satan's schemes. So how can we discover Satan's strategy for destroying families and our peace of mind and our relationship with God through these three avenues? I mean, look at Judas. It was for money. That he took the 30 pieces of silver thinking, well, I'm going to have it made for life now. But then he regretted his decision, right? It was David. It was the the lure of pleasure uh, that had him. He should have been out on the battlefield. He's up on the roof and he sees Bathsheba and says, you know what? Hey, go get her and bring her to me. That was a mistake. Or maybe it was Adam and Eve. It was out of ambition. What What did Satan promise them? You can be like God. Moses, talk about ambition. You hear the voice of the evil one? Hey, Moses, look, you're 40 years old. You've not done anything significant yet. When are you going to get on with this Exodus thing? And so he takes matters into his own hands. So you see how the the subtlety of the evil one and how he uses it. Solomon, man, it was all three. Money, pleasure, and ambition brought his downfall. And, And by the way, Solomon said to God, when God warned him what was going to happen, what did Solomon say to God? Hey, Lord. I can handle it. I got this. Don't worry about me. I got this. And all three of those avenues of the evil one led to his, his demise. So 1 John chapter 2 and verses 15 through 16, I put this on your outline. Uh, I didn't print it out, but here's what it says. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world... 
The cravings of sinful man, pleasure, the lust of the eyes, money, and the boasting of what he has and does, ambition, comes not from the Father, but from the world. Well, who is the leader of the world system? Satan is, okay? These are the three same tactics that he used against Jesus in the temptation in the wilderness. They're the same three weapons that he's going to use against you. It's the same three things we see in the prodigal son, the same three temptations enticing the younger son to leave his father. First, he what? He desired his father's material goods. Give me my inheritance, right? Give me the share of my estate. He had an insatiable desire for pleasure. He went out and he spent everything on wild living. I mean, he didn't hold anything back. He spent every dime that he had. You would have thought he would have put something back for a rainy day, right? No, it was insatiable. And he had ambition. He wanted to make a name for himself apart from his father, so he went to a distant country in order to do that. So let's take briefly here all three of these. Money. Number one, money. Whether you have a lot of money or a little money, it doesn't matter as long as it's consuming you. Okay, if it's consuming your time and your affection, then we have a problem. Uh, most of us know people who desire, whose desire for money and material goods have caused them over the time maybe to neglect their families, their responsibilities, to engage in illegal practices, unethical conduct. Uh, the list goes on, or, or you know, plunge you into some ill-advised investment scheme. Uh, maybe some of you have fallen for that. Money is a huge, huge driving force in our lives. Money is not bad. If you think your money's bad, give it to me. I think it's good. I'll take care of it for you. The Bible says it's the love of money that makes it a temptation where it becomes our all-consuming force in our lives. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. Either he's going to hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Notice he does not say you cannot serve God and sports, or you cannot serve God and work, or you cannot serve God and another person. Why does he insert money? Because Jesus understood the tremendous pull that money has on our lives. And there are many reasons for that. Perhaps Jesus, when he spoke those words, was thinking about the rich young ruler who gave up eternal life with Christ because he loved his money more. Or maybe he thought of Judas who, you know, sold him out, uh, is going to sell him out for 30 pieces of silver. Now consider the story of the prodigal son. I mean, he obviously lived in a very luxurious home because they had servants. They had hired men. The father was very, very wealthy. And yet it wasn't enough. He, he was about to inherit a fortune, but he could not wait because money had this thought of getting his stuff and doing his thing just began to overwhelm him. And so, although Jesus doesn't provide us the details uh, of the father and the son's conversation, um, I can imagine that when the son asked the father for his inheritance, that first of all, the father felt shocked, like, did I just hear him right? Could you repeat that? And then when the son repeated it, probably with a, a great deal of ambition as well as, you know, just, man, this is what I want, maybe the father felt some outrage, like, where do you get off asking me for that which you know 
is not rightfully yours yet unless I am dead. But I think ultimately the father had to feel hurt. For the son to say to his father, look, dad, uh, I know all the stuff you've done for me all my life. I don't want any more of it. I want out of here. I want my share of the inheritance. I just want out of here. If you got to die to give it to me, fine. Just, just give it to me. Let me go. So there's a whole persona here of the younger son that's wrapped up around money. Why is it that money is so alluring to us? How does Satan leverage money against us to create distance between ourselves and God? Because that's exactly what happens in this parable. It's the love of the money that creates the distance between the younger son and his father. Here, let me give you four of them real quick. And you just jot these down. Number one is that because money promises us security for the future, right? It promises us security for the future. Let's say, for example, uh, you hit the lotto and uh, you won, you know, $100 million, right? Would you feel a little secure? Like, you know what? My house is paid for now. My college, college fund for my kids is set aside. I, you know, I don't have any worries. I'm not going to have some expected medical bill that's going to come and wipe me out, man. I am set for life. I, my future is secure. Would we not all think that, right? So that's why money has such a lure. That's why it has such a pull in our lives. But I want you to listen to what Solomon wrote, uh, one of the wealthiest men of all times. It says, he says this in Proverbs 38 and 9. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Notice what he calls it, falsehood and lies. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say... Who is the Lord? And what Solomon was saying is that, look, if I put my hope and my future into money and how much I have and how much I've accumulated and how much I've saved, that if I'm not careful, the pull of that money can create distance between myself and God because I think my lie in my mind is that, hey, if I just get X number of dollars, my security is secure when, in fact, our security is to be found secure in the Father, but that takes trust. See, if I have $100 million or $500 million as a lottery winner, then it's, I don't have to trust God anymore, right? Financially, got a mate, future secure. The only problem with that is that, you know, people can steal your money and people can have all kinds of, you do know that every lottery winner, uh, mega, mega millions, within five to eight years, they're bankrupt because people sue them like crazy over everything and they don't know how to handle their finances and what they thought was going to bring great uh, ease in, into their lives actually does not. And besides that, money can't protect you from a blood clot or a tumor. Money can't protect you from cancer. Money can't protect you from a lot of things when it comes to your future. Number two is money can relieve stress, right? Uh, that's why it captures our affections, the promise to relieve stress in our lives. Again, one of the, one of the leading causes of marital strife is issues of money, okay? Because you know, when, when you get into financial problems as a married couple, you can't get away from that. It's with you 24-7, I'll give you an example. As I was uh, buying tires for my truck uh, about a year and a half ago, and so I'm a discount tire. I'm buying tr uh, uh, tires for my, my Explorer. And um, 
Uh, this guy comes in there. He's a younger guy. looks like he's probably mid-20s. And so he, he buys these rims for this truck that he has, 1800 bucks for the rims, and it's like seven or $800 for the tires. And so he borrows the money, through, gets a loan through discount tires. It's a three-year loan. And uh, then his wife comes in. It's obvious she's about to have a baby. It's obvious to me that that truck probably isn't a year or two year old. I would dare say that he probably took a loan out for that truck. Now, think about this. That kid will be three years old before he pays off the rims and the tires, let alone the truck. How much financial stress do you think that might have created in the family realm because of the love of stuff? Do you really need $1,800 rims? Probably not. Now, maybe, the, uh, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm foolish. Uh, maybe I'm naive. Maybe this guy had more money than he knew what to do with. He just wanted to build credit or something. I don't know. But I would dare say that that baby, when it needs milk and diapers and medical care, there's going to be a whole lot of stress in their future. You know what I know a person who lives on the street doesn't worry about? They don't worry about their Federal Reserve Board if they're going to raise the interest rates. They don't worry about uh, those kinds of Dow's Jones Industrial Average. Here's what King Solomon said. Again, the wealthiest man when it comes to this. He says, As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether he eats little or much. But the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. As I've shared with you many times, um, I worked in seminary for some of the wealthiest men in the world. Uh, I was in the mailroom, okay? I wasn't an executive, but I was in their executive offices. Trust me, some of the most miserable people I've ever been around, and yet they were worth millions upon millions of dollars. Been through multiple marriages. Um, you know, we received all kinds of packages every Christmas from Neiman, from Neiman Marcus, uh, but trust me, it wasn't for their wives, it were for their mistresses, and on and on it goes. Here's the third lure of money. Money can fulfill our desires, right? We believe that money will just fulfill our desires. If I just had X number of dollars, I could build that home, drive that car, take that trip, wear those clothes. And so um, it, it, it is, that what, that's what makes it so alluring to us. Here's the last one. Money can provide independence, a sense of independence in our lives so we think. And so I just want you to know that if you're not careful, the very thing that we deal with day, every single day of our lives, money, material possessions, if we are not careful, the evil one will leverage those things against us and will create this distance between ourselves and God because we're having a very difficult time trusting God in this area of our life. And maybe you said, you know what, I'm going to trust God, okay? I'm going to step out. I'm going to trust God with my finances. And then you did that, and all of a sudden you, you experienced a financial reversal. And then Satan comes along and says, I told you, not going to work. Father doesn't care. Yes, he does. Trust me, your father cares and if you will follow him, if you will step, listen, if you will not trust in your, do not lean on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge God and you step on the pathway, God will take you to the destination he desires for you. 
when it comes to finances. All right, here's the second thing, pleasure. What about pleasure? Is there something wrong with pleasure? Well, no. I mean, is there something wrong with choosing to watch a TV program instead of praying or flipping through a catalog instead of turning the pages of your Bible or daydreaming about your next vacation instead of the wonders of heaven? Well, no, but it's like anything else. Pleasure can get out of control, right? So like yesterday, okay, so I know I'm preaching here Sunday morning. I've prepared all week, but you know, this is the weekend of the Masters Tournament. Now, for those of you who are non-golfers, it means nothing to you. But the Masters Tournament means everything to me. So I, I indulged in a guilty pleasure. I went and helped my son-in-law put on a screen door on his, uh, on his house uh, on the coldest day, you know, snow. We're moving snow out of the way to get this job done. We get it done. And so, you know, I said, I'm going I'm to indulge in a guilty pleasure. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to watch the Masters. I should have been praying for you. See, God's, God's not into not allowing us to experience pleasures in life. He wants us to experience pleasures. God has given us many, many things for our pleasure. But if we're not careful, if we're not careful, Satan can leverage that against you so that that becomes the focal point of your life and it creates distance between you and God because now everything takes place of God, right? It's like, okay, Lord, I'll have time with you after da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da and maybe, you know, at the end of the week we'll, we'll get together. That's what you don't want to happen. And so Jesus modeled for us, right? He modeled for us spending time with the Father every day and just seeking the heart and the, and the mind of God so that we put pleasures in their proper place in our lives so that we maintain this close, intimate walk with the Father, that we find ultimate pleasure in Him. And here's the last one, ambition. What does ambition mean? Ambition means that, you know, you... You have some things you want to accomplish in life. Nothing wrong with ambition. God gave you ambition. He's put something on your heart that you're just, you're really ambitious about, that you love doing, and you really believe that God has gifted you in this area to see that accomplished. Nothing wrong with that at all. Unless, again, like the prodigal son, he grew tired of living in his father's house and with older brother's shadow, the clock's ticking, and he decides, you know what, I'm going to go out, I'm going to do this thing in my way, in my timing, how I want it done. And so he just like forfeited whatever the father had planned out for him. That's what God does not want you to do. Because when we travel those pathways, and uh, if, if I were to ask you the sentence, my greatest desire in life is to what? What's your greatest desire in life? Your answer may involve a position or something you'd like to achieve, a degree you'd like to earn, a lifestyle you'd like to enjoy. But once you think about that, you know, you need to ask the question, well, do, what do, I spend, do I spend most of my time thinking about this? Do I spend most of my time praying about this? Is this a, God, a God-given goal and desire in my life? And, and how does God want to fulfill this plan and purpose for my life? Because sometimes if we are so ambitious, we can bypass God and get our feet on the wrong path that leads to the wrong destination. So here's, here's the whole purpose of this message this morning is if you're going to trust God, all right, you've got to trust God with your financial resources, okay? Let him be your security. Let him be your provider. Let him give you wisdom and guidance how to handle those things because the Bible is full of 2,500 verses just on 
finances and material possessions. Why so much? Because it's, it, it has such a pull upon our hearts. The Bible talks a lot about pleasure and how to leverage pleasure to your advantage and, and, and unfolding God's plan for your life as well as ambition. God never asks us to abandon our ambitions. He has given us unique desires and gifts to achieve more than we could ever dream possible. But here's what you got to remember, and we'll close with this. This is the last fill-in-the-blank on your um, outline. Don't let fear, don't let fear, remember what I said, the orphan spirit's driven by fear and lies. Don't let fear determine your faith, your fate, I'm sorry, your fate, F-A-T-E, but rather let faith Determine your future. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. When things are happening in your life that are seeking to erode your faith and trust in God, stop Stop leaning on your own understanding. Stop leaning on your own explanation. Stop leaning on your trying to figure it out why this is happening the way it is happening. So that's one of the things with Joseph. Like, out of the gate, he didn't understand why God gave him this dream. Now he's off in, you know, being sold in, off into slavery, in prison for many, many years. But then it came to him, and he un- began to understand. He said to his brothers, listen, your human decision meant to be, bring harm into my life, but God's will was for me to become second in command over all of Egypt, so that I might save the lives of many. Don't let your fear determine your fate. Let your faith determine your future. Trust in your heavenly Father, because that sets your feet on the path that always leads to the right and best destination, even though you may not understand all of his ways, he will get you to where he wants you. Let's bow our heads together.